Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Welcome to Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series of the the Digital First National Museum of American Religion, an institution dedicated to telling the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle. Listeners, uh, to join the museum effort officially, go to whensorrowcomes.subscribemenow.com where you can receive, with a $200 donation, a signed copy of When Sorrow Comes, a book by Melissa Mathis about sermons that have come to the aid of America during times of national crisis. The most recent addition to the Smithsonian Museums on the National Mall is the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which opened in September of 2016. This is a profound and exceptionally meaningful addition to the tapestry woven by the museums in Washington, D.C. From the perspective of the National Museum of American Religion, we want to know more about the roles that religion played in the story of slavery, and its aftermath, bringing us up to the present moment. To do this, we have with us today Teddy R. Reeves, Curator of Religion at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Mr. Reeves is also a producer, digital theologian, and a fashion and art enthusiast. He earned his BA from Hampton University, his Master's of Divinity from Princeton Seminary, and is currently a Ph.D. candidate at Fordham University. In 2018, Teddy created a web-based talk show series for the museum entitled God Talk, Black Millennials and Faith Conversation, which explores the dynamic ways black millennials are engaging with faith in the 21st century. He is a sought-after public speaker, teacher, facilitator, and proclaimer. Additionally, Teddy is also on the board of directors of the National Museum of American Religion. Teddy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited about the conversation. Teddy, first, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, how you came to be a religion curator, or the religion curator at the museum, and what that means to you personally? Yeah, you know, Chris, it's interesting. I had no desire to ever at any point growing up to to, to be a religion curator or to be a curator uh, in essence at all. Um, it is something I literally stumbled into. Um, my goal as a child was to be a news anchor. 
Um, and mm. so that was really that driving force along the way and, and everything that I did. Um, um, from graduating from undergrad, I became a school teacher. Um, I taught high school English in prestigious, two prestigious uh, independent schools uh, in California and Charlotte. Um, and got the call to ministry, honestly. Um, I was um, preparing to get a master's degree in journalism um, and to kind of begin that track um, and felt this, this, this urge and this voice calling me to something, um, something else um, and something more fulfilling that I found it to be. Um, and so I went off to Princeton Seminary. Um, I got my Master of Divinity uh, with a concentration in Black Church Studies, um, and subsequently uh, left there and went corporate, uh, surprisingly. I uh, went mm. to do um, fundraising for uh, the Catholic Church of North Carolina um, and did some campaigns for a few churches in New York and in New Jersey. And so um, leaving that space, um, I went into full-time ministry, something that I vowed that I would never do, um, but went into full-time ministry in New York um, and served as an executive pastor at a church in Jamaica, Queens, um, served as a youth pastor at a church in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, and so from there, uh, simultaneously was working at Princeton Seminary in the Black Church Studies Department uh, under the leadership of Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce, who is now the dean at Howard Divinity School. Uh, Yolanda was called down, um, recruited down to uh, open the Center for the Study of African-American Religious Life at uh, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Um, and so okay. as I was working with her at Princeton and, and she got this amazing opportunity to come down to the museum, um, the door kind of opened for me to join her. And so um, came in 2017 and have been here ever since. Um, I am a child that loved museums, but never necessarily desired to work in a museum. Um, and so uh, my mother would take me to museums. My wife and I um, visit museums frequently. And so when the opportunity presented itself, I was like, okay, God, what are you doing? Like, this is not the trajectory to news anchor. Um, even still while being in ministry, I, I was like, there has to be some path towards that. Um, mm. And I've been at the museum going on five years and found it to be an amazing space to explore religion um, and to engage with the public around uh, these African-American religions, religious practice, um, expanding the notions of what that actually means, um, diving deeper into um, other traditions that are, are kind of on the margins when we talk about African-American religious practice and engagement. And so it has been a phenomenal space to um, do this work, right, to fulfill what I still believe is a call, um, mm -hmm. but in a very different way. Right. So you see this as perhaps part of God's call to you? You're thinking Absolutely. that right? That, that there is, um, we need workers and, and people tilling all types of vineyards. Um, and so I see the museum as a space, a neutral space, um, that people can come of all different faith traditions, and we can have robust conversations. We can uh, tell stories, tell stories through exhibitions and oral histories and symposia and conferences, um, and engage with practitioners and scholars alike, right? That this is a conversation that's often happening in the, in the theological academy, how do we bridge this gap between the church and the academy? How do we bridge this gap between the field and the, and the uh, academia? And I find that museums can become one of those spaces where we begin to bridge those gaps 
um, because it's a space that's not necessarily invested in one space being right or wrong. Right. It's a space of inquiry. It's a space um, where we all can come together and have these conversations and engage with one another. And and it has been the best discovery um, that I've found thus far in my journey that, you know, uh, as things are moving and, and, and life takes you in different ways, this was one of those spaces that um, I had not imagined, but I, I feel that I am at the right place at the right time. Right, that that uh, is beautifully said and, and helps us understand you a, a little bit better and what you're doing there. As you, so before we get into discussing where religion is found in, in that museum um, and what it means, the, the the story that that museum tells, your museum tells, is so vitally important to the narrative of the American project. You have a focus of religion in that just profound narrative um, that sort of rivets the country, right? Um, and has and w- does and will continue to, and especially 2020, that are, are reckoning with things. H- how do you see religion, so uh, from a real high, pers- high level here, high altitude, how do you see religion in that epic story that is that museum? What's its yeah. meaning there? Yeah, I, I think it leads into where kind of, religion is found in the museum? I think those two questions really go hand in hand. Um, For us, religion is interwoven in all facets of the museum story, right? You cannot talk about um, African-American people in this country without talking about the influence that religion has had on us, the the influence that religion has had um, in our lives, in our practices, in our struggles, in our Um, fighting for justice, religion is a quintessential part of that story. And so the way that we tell that story at the museum and the way that we really chronicle that story is to ensure that religion is found in every exhibition space, that religion is found in, in every part of your journey as you walk from slavery to freedom to uh, segregation, as you walk to music and visual arts and take it religion is a part of our story in this country, right? That that we were not, and it also pushes against that narrative that we came here and got religion, right? But that this is a continuation of something that we brought here, right? That this is a continuation of um, religious practices evolving and, em- and emerging and, 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 and transforming in themselves in the face of oppression and systematic uh, issues, right? That there is um, this, this spirit right? Wherever that may be for whatever faith tradition you may find yourself in, that that there is this commonality for Africana people of this understanding of spirit, right? That this transcendent being that is able to ground and speak and move and settle um, and and, and guide us throughout our journeys, um, that, that this is something we brought with us. And it has evolved. It has taking new shapes, right? As uh, famed uh, African-American historian Albert Rabito said, you know, as we got here, here, we begin to worship old gods under new names, right? That religion has been a part of our narrative. Um, and so what we try to do at the museum is to share that story and continue that story and highlight it in every facet 
um, that we try to tell about the African-American journey in this country. Um, at the museum, we say we tell the American story through an African-American lens, and we can't tell that American story um, through that African-American lens without the story of religion and spirituality. Okay, well said. So let's dive deep here a little bit. Give us some, um, you know, some of the places uh, in the museum where religion is found. You say it's everywhere, and I've been there, and you're right. It's, it's so maybe that question will lead us astray, but, but what are maybe for you some of the most meaningful religious stories in the tale that is told there? Give us some examples that have moved you. Yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll, sh I'll start with kind of telling where some, some high points of where religion can be found and then talk about okay. um, some of the ways that religion, some of the stories um, that are really meaningful for me. I guess when you can really start, you know, when you go to the, to the basement floor of the museum, if you start, pardon me, in slavery and freedom, you're, you're immediately um, telling the story is beginning to be told. And as you're walking through that piece, you begin to see religion at various points. But I, for me, I really uh, start the conversation. Um, and one of the key pieces for me when we're going through the museum is kind of the paradox of liberty section where we have um, the pew and the money box related to the African Methodist Episcopal Church, right? We Early on in the story, we talk about um, Islam, right? When we talk about um, as uh, the enslaved population is coming to this country, right? There, historians estimate that there, a third of that population were Muslim, right? As when they were coming to this country. And so we begin to tell that story mm -hmm. in the, the beginning of the exhibition of Slavery and Freedom. Um, but one of the places um, that people really, um, and I'm thinking about visitors as well, really kind of first get struck with religion is when you kind of walk into the paradox of liberty section. And on the left hand side, you have um, the, the pew from Mother Emmanuel, uh, Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church sitting there. And on the right side, you have images of early ministers, right? And so we begin to really tell the story as, as uh, African-American people are beginning to create some sense of normalcy in this country um, through institution building, right? Through the institution building of Prince Hall Masonry, through the institution of the Black church being established, right? The AME church becomes the first denomination, African-American denomination in this country. And so it, in that, with that pew from Mother Bethel, uh, which was founded in 1794, we're beginning to tell the story of how African-American people are resisting the issues of racism and systematic oppression as Richard Allen gets up from his predominantly white Methodist church and goes and founds the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So we have this pew from Mother Bethel um, that really begins to tell that story of institution building, particularly mm -hmm. through the lens of religion. And we also have the, the, the money box of the founder, Bishop Richard Allen, right? That again, this talks about um, the ways in which um, African-American people are, are, are raising their own resources, right? That they are doing this and doing this institution building through economics, right? At a time where many African-Americans, particularly in Southern states, um, are un still unable to own things, right? But that right. Richard Allen and others and the work of Black women create this institution, right? As a symbol, create this denomination as a symbol against what's going on all around them in the North, but also in solidarity with their brothers and sisters in the South. So that's one place that religion really is kind of beginning to be woven in and kind of I wanted to highlight. Um, another place in that same section, again, you begin to see uh, as you're moving throughout 
um, you see Nat Turner's Bible. Um, Nat Turner's Bible, uh, many people know the rebellion of, that happened on August 21st, 1831. Uh, Turner says he hears a vision um, and uh, hears, a, hears, hears from God, this divine intervention, this, this vision and has this vision to free his people from um, the plantation in Southampton County. And so Turner and six others killed the Travis family and managed to secure arms and horses and enlisted about 75 other enslaved people um, to really create this insurrection, uh, which it's estimated they killed about 55 um, white individuals at that time. But Turner through this Bible is saying that I heard God right? That this little tiny Bible that um, sometimes I, I wear glasses. And so sometimes I'm like, I can't even barely read the words without um, a microscope. Like that there, that this thing, right? That um, for African-American people through enslavement, even up to current times has been used um, both positively and negatively, right? That this, 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 these, this text, um, particularly for those who were enslaved were used as um, methods to keep them enslaved, right? Slaves obey your masters and other texts that were, were very prominent and very taught, taught during that period that Turner uses this text, is carrying this text with him at the point of the insurrection and saying that I heard from God. Um, the question becomes, as I'm interpreting that, particularly for people when we're doing tours or high school kids or middle school kids, mm -hmm. the question always for me is, how do we sit with, um, as a theologian myself, how do we sit with the early Old Testament writers who said that they heard from God? Right, that God told them to go conquer locations and kill folks and leave no one, take no one, right? That we have to sit with the massacre and the messiness of the text, right? That, that, that this does not discount that Turner may have heard from God, right? Because we have similar examples in the Old Testament where, where other people said they heard from God and went and destroyed cultures and communities and customs and all of those other things in the name of God. Right. Um, and so, again, this 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 artifact helps us tell that story. Right. That it, it is not only a historic story, but it's a contemporary story. Right. That that is the job of museums. Right. That we're making these connections to the past, but we can also make current connections of of, of what does it mean for communities to be destroyed in the name of God. Right. What right. does it mean for cultures to be destroyed or people's ways of being and life to be destroyed or questioned in the name of God? Right. That we have to really sit with that as a theologian, as a museum uh, connoisseur, as as a visitor. What does that mean? Right. How have we oppressed people in the name of God? Right. Um, and so I think that this artifact helps us. And it is a part of that story that we begin to really interpret. Right. When we're talking about religion in woven in and out of the stories of African-American people. Right. Um, another point in that same section, uh, about 10, 15 steps away, we have Harriet Tubman's hymnal. Right. That mm. this hymnal, which is about eight by five inches, uh, this 19th century hymnal um, is is Tubman's. Right. And what's I wouldn't say peculiar, but interesting about this is that that Tubman could not read. Right. Um, and so that there's something powerful about having this way that uh, songs and language and, and other things were passed throughout um, African-American communities and continues to be today. And so those are some some early points, particularly in our slavery and freedom uh, exhibition where religion is really found. Um, mm -hmm. Then you can go to our defining freedom uh, 
defending freedom, defining free freedom, our area of segregation from 1876 to 1968 section, uh, where we begin to talk about uh, other religious traditions um, and really expand on that. Where we, we have prayer rugs, we have beads and kufis belonging to four, four note, excuse me, formidable Black Islamic leaders such mm-hmm. as Imam W.D. Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad. Uh, we have um, different uh, religious garbs. We have um, uh, uh, ministerial kits that soldiers, uh, chaplains that are in the army use as they are on the battlefields, um, whether they're Islamic chaplains or Christian chaplains, we have those things where we begin to tell the story of how religion impacted um, African-Americans from that uh, 1876 period to 1968. So as we're going through segregation, uh, we have several images of other religious communities that begin to emerge at that time and the role that religion um, begins to play, particularly in the civil rights movement, right? We are talking about um, Dr. King when you're talking about the role of the nation of Islam, when you're talking about uh, the role of other religious leaders and, and black churches at that time and how um, black churches in particular, not all, but some um, really helped move um, the civil rights movement forward. When you're thinking about the, the Student Christian Leadership Association and the all of those, the SCLC and all of those different things that are happening at that period, um, religion again plays a quintessential part of the African-American freedom struggle, right? That you, whether it is the call and response chants that African-Americans are speaking or singing as they're marching over the Pettus Bridge or marching through these various communities, or whether it's the prayer or the meetings in local churches, right? The churches played uh, quintessential roles in this, this conversation and this movement. Uh, we have the stained glass uh, when the particles from the stained glass windows from the 16th Street church bombing, right? That at the um, the civil rights movement really is birthed after the bombing and the killing of these four little girls, right? Uh, and that that religion again is prominently displayed and interwoven. So when you're having these conversations about the nation of Islam and, and about the civil rights movement, we make sure that we ground them oftentimes in what was kind of this central thing for African-American people. And it was religion. Religion mm-hmm. was a community building thing. Religion was, um, uh, religious communities were feeding people in urban centers in the 60s and 70s. Religious uh, communities were, were serving as social service agencies, right? When African-Americans couldn't get fair uh, treatment in other spaces, uh, local pastors and imams and missionaries and, and other individuals within Black religious spaces served as um, bedrock uh, institutions for this freedom struggle. So we really begin to talk about that. Uh, and really kind of tease and nuance that in those right. spaces. Um, as you move upstairs and are making a way out of no way section, again, we be, religion is, is kind of in those spaces and, and mentioned in those spaces as well. And I'm thinking particularly of our exhibition um, or the exhibit uh, in that making a way uh, space around Jarena Lee and other black women leaders in um, early religious practice. Uh, so mm-hmm. Jarena Lee is the first African-American woman to have an autobiograph autobiography published in the United States. She's also the first African-American woman to preach the gospel publicly. And we really begin to tell that story of not only Jarena Lee, who's a part of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, but also other leaders in the Baptist Church and other Christian spaces who were very prominent in in the early work of Black women 
being preachers and black women accepting their call, not without its own hostility, not without the role of patriarchy and sexism and all the ways that these women were were marginalized because they felt called by God. Um, we also talk about the ways that these women uh, triumphed and continued to speak the word, even in the face of patriarchy and sexism, right? Even in the face of racism, that this, um, these women were quintessential um, for women and for mothers to not only to black church movements, not only to uh, other black women, but these women are our, our founding women and our founding mothers um, when we think about early religious leaders in the Black freedom struggle. And so we lift up her, uh, Jarena Lee and others in that section um, in the museum. I guess the final section I would really highlight um, where religion can be found in the museum uh, outside of our, our uh, musical crossways section where we talk about African-American music. Right. We talk about gospel music singers. You, you can see, again, religion there. Absolutely. Taking the stage section where we talk about film and entertainment, you can see religion there. But another place that religion is found is in our visual arts gallery. Uh, we have several religious pieces by notable African-American artists, but one piece that I'm thinking about in particular uh, is the 1956 piece by David Driscoll, Behold Thy Son. Um, this painting is um, depicting uh, the figure of Emmett Till, right? That he's, his hands are stretched out, similar to this Christ-like motif of Christ being stretched out on the cross. That Driscoll is, is painting this to really talk about the ways and the sacrifices of many young lives from Christ to Till, many young Black lives. Um, and, and, and I put that in quote, uh, many young, the sacrifice of many young lives from Christ to Till, Driscoll says, that really highlights the brutality um, of the killing uh, of Emmett Till, right? That he is um, murdered at the hands, and I'll talk about that a little later, um, but that this brutality that happens to this child, right? Emmett Till is 14 years old, but also the brutality that happens, that has happened to African-Americans and black bodies in this country as they're hung from trees, as they are burned alive, all of these different things that Driscoll paints this, um, this body being upheld by a woman, right, in the background um, and holding and embracing this body. And so we, we tackle religion in visual arts, we tackle religion in music, we tackle religion in slavery, we tackle, tackle religion in military, we tackle religion all throughout the museum um, and photography to really, again, make sure that we, we when we're telling the story, we talk about the role and the influence and the impact that religion has had in the lives of African-American people. Wow, very compelling, Teddy. Um, what you just shared uh, may have been a combination of what has moved you and what has moved visitors. Is there anything um, that you want to talk about that maybe uh, you didn't say uh, that, that has moved visitors regarding what the religious aspects that they see in the museum? Yeah, I think as I was beginning to really talk about Teal, I think one of the most impactful ways and one of the most visited, um, if you've been to the museum, you know, there's always a line to see yep. in Ms. Teal's casket. Um, and so when we think, when particularly for me, when I think about visitors and I think about religion and one of the most uh, meaningful things that happens in that space is the viewing of Emmett Teal's casket. Right, that that when we talk about African American religion, we can't miss African American um, rituals around death 
and healing and all of those other things. And I think that that story is told through the viewing of, of Emmett Till's casket, right? Till, Till we know the story, 14 year old, uh, African-American uh, visiting family in uh, Mississippi from Chicago um, is murdered for supposedly whistling at a white woman, Carol Bryan Dunham. Um, and at the time after he's um, pulled up from the river in Mississippi, his body is discovered. Um, his mother, Mamie Till, tells the funeral director, uh, let the people see what I see, right? These are her famous words that she wanted an open casket so that people could see what this system, what these, these men and these people had done to her son, right? That Till's murder becomes an impetus for the civil rights movement, right? That, that this child, right? And I reiterate child because I think it's important for us to really sit with um, the ways in which oftentimes black children um, are, are adulthoods adulthood is superimposed on them. So Till is 14 at this time and is murdered for supposedly whistling at a white woman um, who later in 2017 comes forth and said that those allegations aren't true, right? That there is in this moment within the museum and we're talking about religion and we're, we're, we're sitting with uh, religious practice, we're sitting with the death ritual for black Christians, right? That as people are waiting in line to go and view his body, as um, Mahalia Jackson is playing, we wanted to give people um, the feeling of what it was like to walk and wait to view that body at that time, right? That, that people are mourning, people are silent, people are wailing. And at the time, Jet Magazine is covering and, and, and you, we have outside of that exhibition where you can really walk into um, the, the, the sanctuary, as I call it, because essentially that's what we've recreated, right? We've recreated this, this Kojic sanctuary in which Till's body laid. And as people are walking in, we're asking them not to take photos. We're asking them to sit. It's often silent, right? You may hear tears, you may hear wailing, you may hear particularly young people and teenagers really kind of sitting with what this means um, for, for me. What does this mean? How, how do I contextualize this as a generation's year or as uh, this person who is far removed from this? Um, but we also have people who were living at that time walking through that exhibit. So they're mm -hmm. reliving in some ways the trauma, right, that was impacted on them when this initially happened. Um, and so for me, I think that that is one of the most meaningful uh, religious spaces in the museum that has been cultivated. Um, because people, whether you are Christian, whether you're Buddhist, whether you're Jewish, whether uh, you find yourself a non-believer, when people walk in there, there is this understanding that this is a sacred space, right? And it becomes a space where one can grieve, one can interpret on their own, one can, uh, you see people uh, embracing one another, you see people um, pulling tissues for other people they don't know out of the purse. Um, it becomes a sacred space. Uh, and so for me, um, and for many of the visitors, I think it is a quintessential part of the museum story when we're talking about religion. Um, and in particular for us in the Center for the Study of African-American Religious Life, um, what we tried to do is to create programming and things that speak to or, or, or um, allow us to nuance and go further with the objects that we have in the collection. So people 
Or, uh, back in 2017, we held a conference called Healing the Sick, Burying the Dead, Traditions, Rituals, and Rites of Healing and Death in the Black Religious Experience. Um, and wow. that can still be found on the museum's website, where we really wanted to explore the healing practices and burial rituals across a wide variety of faith traditions in the African-American context. So including Christianity, Islam, traditional African religions. And so we use the teal moment right, as this grounding moment. We use um, images from MLK's uh, uh, funeral. We use images from, from other moments, uh, Megar Evers' funeral. We use these images to really ground what this means for African-American people to mourn, right? What does it mean contextually today for African-American people or, or, and Black bodies to mourn the death of those who are lost at the hands of the state, the death of those who are lost at the hands of systems of oppression and white supremacy and all of those different things. And so for us as museum professionals, we're always trying to ground the conversation historically, but also think about what does it mean contextually today um, in light of everything that's going on, the social unrest of 2020, the social unrest of 2014, all of these continuous right. moments of death that we've had to experience as a people, how do we mourn, right? How do we grieve? Mm -hmm. How do we stop? Um, how do we reflect? Um, and, and we're seeing that even today, um, even in light of COVID-19, how are people mourning through through digital technologies, right? That we can no longer mourn together because of a, a, a pandemic, but how do we mourn even collectively as a community using digital technology? Um, and so right. for me, there that is one of the most meaningful places I think that we hear from a lot of time from visitors. Um, and yeah. so we, we're constantly trying to um, create programming and create moments where we can capture that. Um, in the museum, we have uh, these oral history booths, um, these reflection booths where people can kind of talk about reflections and things of that nature. Um, and, and many of them talk about that Emmett Till moment, right? That this is a, a, wow. a, a hard moment, whether they're young or old, pardon me, to sit with the death of a child um, yeah. as we today sit with the death of another ch a Black child. Um, again, at the hands of a system. And so uh, that is one of the most meaningful, I, I would think. Um, but for me, uh, one of the most meaningful religious stories for me that um, I've had the opportunity to kind of help tease out. So the Center for the Study of African-American Religious Life came on board and opened at the museum in 2017. And so many of the inaugural exhibitions had already been curated as we were coming on as a staff um, because the, mu the museum leadership realized that we, if you're gonna tell the story of religion, we need staff and curatorial staff and, and experts um, to work in religion, um, to really nuance and, and move forward these conversations. So uh, the Center for the Study of African-American Religious Life, we we refer to as CARL, as the acronym, uh, was created thanks to a generous uh, grant from the Lilly Endowment um, to preserve, create public programs, um, do original scholarship around the African-American religious experience. And so one of our biggest joys is that we've been able to really go out and continue to collect 
around African-American religious life from marginalized communities that are not oftentimes when you're thinking about black religion, it's still overwhelmingly Christian uh, right. in conversation and dialogue. And so we really tried to nuance that even in the understanding of African-Americans participation in Christianity, that there are African-American Presbyterians, that there are African-American Lutherans, that there are African-Americans that are not necessarily in traditional uh, black church spaces. Um, but they're right. found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're found in, um, in, in Rastafarian communities. They're found in Buddhism. That African-Americans have really run the gamut of participation and engagement in religion. Um, but one of the things uh, and most meaningful for me has been to really is the work around African-American uh, Catholics mm -hmm. um, and really e expanding uh, the notion of uh, Blacks uh, participation in Catholicism. Um, and right. so one of the most meaningful things, uh, we have images throughout the museum um, of the Sisters of the Holy Family and uh, Black religious women. So African-American nuns, mm -hmm. the one in particular, I guess, that I would kind of highlight for me that's the most meaningful um, is recently, about a year ago, we were able to collect um, more than uh, 50 objects from the Sisters of the Holy Family uh, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, the Sisters of the Holy Family are the second oldest African-American religious order of nuns in the Catholic Church mm. in the United States. Wow. Um, they were founded in 1837 as the Sisters of Presentation uh, by Venerable Henrietta DeLille. Um, and so what's fascinating for me and what's been a joy for me as a curator is that, you know, what, 2018, my colleague and I were able to go down to New Orleans and for a week, we set up a camera at the mother house of the Sisters of the Holy Family and conducted oral histories with the sisters. Um, and so we mm -hmm. got to really nuance these artifacts, right? To, to go deeper in the artifacts that they donated to the museum um, by getting the stories of these black women. Right, that, that oftentimes when we're talking about Black religion and we're talking about African-Americans participation in Black religious spaces, women's voices are, are more than often always marginalized. And so something in the Center for Religion we've really uh, made a priority for us is to, to highlight and to, to ensure that we are telling the stories of Black women and their contributions to our religious history and their contributions to sustaining our religious communities. And so the Sisters of the Holy Family become one of those stories for us. So they are a powerful group wow. of Black women nuns um, living in New Orleans, still active today. Um, they are they established the first uh, and oldest nursing home uh, in the for the Catholic Church in the United States in 1841. That's still in existence today. Um, wow. They run a high school for um, young people, right? Over 700 people in that young people in that school daily. Um, and they were founded by uh, Venerable Henrietta DeLille. Um, there was a movie a few years back that Vanessa Williams played her, a Lifetime movie. Um, and so where this woman... Um, in the face in New Orleans, in the face of, of racism and enslavement, founds this religious order for Black women. Um, and and mm -hmm. in collecting these oral histories, we get the stories of how these Black women, many of them coming to the nunnery in the 1950s, right? As they talk about, you know, there was very few places Black women could go at that time, right? You could become a nun, you could become a school teacher, you could become a nurse or a housewife, right? And so many of them talking about um, filling this call to, to, to fulfill their ministry through um, the work through the church. 
all of these women are college educated. They sent them to college. They were high school principals and they were nurses. They were um, uh, higher education administrators at universities across this country. Um, they did the work. Um, and so for me, it's really telling the story of this group of black women um, that yes. have wow. run the gamut since you know 1837. Um, of yeah. serving not only New Orleans, but serving all throughout this country um, and the work that they've done. Um, the interesting part is their, their foundress, Henrietta DeLille, uh, on March 27, 2010, was decreed uh, venerable by Pope Benedict XVI. Um, and so she is on track um, and remains in the process um, to becoming a saint in the Catholic Church, right? Which is, uh, which would be historical in many ways, right? That in the United right. States, uh, she would become the first United States native born African-American whose calls for canonization has been officially opened by the Catholic Church. Um, and so that there is um, this beauty in this story, right? And really highlighting this story um, of Black uh, black participation in Catholicism and particularly black women's participation. And so for me, the most meaningful stories have been uplifting the voices of black women. Um, through our oral history project, we have a black religious pluralism project where we go around and talk to religious leaders and practitioners to capture their stories and their journeys with faith. And so we've really um, gathered a, a wealth of over 90 oral histories um, thus far of religious leaders and practitioners ranging from millennials to baby boomers to silent generation um, individuals talking about their experiences with faith. Um, and so this, those have been the most meaningful for me moments in the work. Right. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I had no idea mm -hmm. about that sister in Louisiana. That needs to be a book. I'm sure someone will write one. There are there's some out there, so you, okay. you can take a look. And and outside of COVID, um, you are more than welcome if you're ever in New Orleans, anyone to reach out to them. They welcome visitors um, okay. every day um, at lunchtime. They're feeding the homeless. The homeless can come to their door and eat in New Orleans. So it's a powerful reminder of the work that Black women continue to do yeah. in our religious spaces. Yeah. In the last few minutes we have, Teddy, I want to um, uh, maybe uh, back up a little bit or or, or go to a higher altitude and ask you just two two questions uh, that are um, sort of broad ranging here so there there is there's definitely in the United States a religious history thread it's bright it's strong it's profound it's important um, there seems to be and either it's in that thread or right beside that well it's in the thread but but the the black church thread right your expertise that you've described so well, as seen in your museum, are are these are these threads? Have they been in parallel? They they, they don't often overlap or intersect. They they seem to sometimes, at least from my the historical record that the museum that I that I understand and from what you describe, they're they're separate almost. There's the black church thread, important, vital, robust, and then there's for you know that then there's the other let's say, relig American religious thread. And they both are doing very, very important work. Yeah, I think MLK said the most segregated day of the week is Sunday. I think that may still be the case. I remember talking to a good friend of mine who's a black preacher, and I basically was saying, I wish this were, would end. I think we should. And he said, hold on, Chris. The black church has always been a place of safety and refuge, 
don't try to impose yourself will you, that sort of uh thought he shared with me tell us teddy about those two threads you know the i mean the, the slaves were a different entity right we white americans owned them right and so every that there was a definite separateness how is that separateness of faith in the black church there throughout american history does it intersect does it overlap will it in the future does it need to for the american project to survive and to flourish talk to us a little bit about that teddy if you understand what i'm sort of getting at yeah i think i do um i think in in some ways the question for me kind of on this altitude level and the question we're constantly poking at at the museum and particularly in the center for religion is what do we mean by the black church right because that is a term that we've particularly used as an all-encompassing term, right? right? That um, African-Americans have been participating in religion within the institution of the Black church, right? That this is this institution born um, in a time of enslavement, in a time um, out of struggle, right? That this institution, this Christian-based institution is born out of struggle. Um, But it often leaves out individuals who participated mm-hmm. in that struggle who weren't necessarily in traditional black church spaces, right. never left the regu- the United Methodist church, right? That right. did not become a part of the AME church. So I always want to tease that out and yeah. ensure like, what are we defining when we talk about the black church? Yep. Um, traditionally, we have this, this linear idea of the black church, right. that it is historically black denominations. And that is true. But I also again, when we're talking about the work that we do at the center is to always tell the totality of the story, right? right? That African-Americans, some stayed, right? And some fought within their respective denominations um, for greater equality and continue to do that work today, right? You have a a, a Bishop Curry over the Episcopal Church in the United States, right? That is not historically Black, but you have this Black man who is the leader of that community. And so that Um, I'm always, and we're always kind of situating that conversation of what do we mean by the black church? How do we expand that notion of of the black church Um, to include black people who are in traditional spaces, but also black people who have stayed in uh, predominantly white spaces. So that's the first thing. I think um, with the gentleman um, that you you were mentioning, I also think that there is something to that. Um, that the Black church historically, when we're talking about the Black Christian, historically Black denominations, have been spaces of refuge for Black people. Um, And they have been places of healing, but they also have been places of harm, right? That we cannot divorce the two, right? That they have been places where collective struggle um, and fighting for uh, emancipation and fighting for equality happened, but it was not all Black churches, right? That, that King did not have this overwhelming majority of mm. Black Christian churches and Black Christian pastors behind him. It was a small minority, right? Mm. And so we have to sit with that there is some tension within that black, the Black church, right? That there, all of them have not always been on board with the freedom struggle, um, but they have been, some of them were more concerned about protecting their own people. Right, and protecting the people within their communities and what that would mean in their community if they joined King or if they joined insurrections and other things. And so we have to sit with the messiness of this, yeah. this American experience, right? And this American project. 
and what racism has done to Black people, even within our religious spaces. Mm-hmm. How we may perpetuate some of some of these notions of racism and white supremacy within Black spaces. Um, that that we can't divorce the two of those as well, right? right. That, that yes, the Black church has been this, this thread and this community for us. And it's something we've really explored in the center through um, one of our kind of uh, keystone, uh, one of our uh, central, oh, missing the word right now, Chris, one of our uh, f- main programs, our God Talk conversation, um, particularly talking about a partnership we, we are under with, with the Pew Research Center to really explore the way that Black millennials are engaging with faith, right? That faith, um, historically for Black people, we have historically, and even today, we're overwhelmingly still Christian, but those numbers are changing. Right, that we have a rising number of those that are disaffiliating from organized religion altogether and disaffiliating from Christianity, right? While the numbers of African Americans who are Muslim are still relatively small um, and who are a part of other traditions are still, Buddhism are still relatively small. Um, overwhelmingly, African Americans are still Christian, right? So we, when we're talking about the way and the roles of the black church and we're talking about the roles of black religion in the lives of Black people, um, you have the Nation of Islam, right? You have Elijah Muhammad, you have uh, WD, you have all of this happening at the same time um, as the Christian Black church is fighting for equality, right? And they overlapped at times, right? There was tension at times, right? The most notable tension that people always kind of go to is MLK and, and, and um, Malcolm X, right? That this, right. this tension of two different ideologies and two different ways of moving forward in this freedom struggle. But they've all been on this journey of fighting for freedom, right? And you can even see the overlap in some of um, the earlier years. Again, when I'm talking about enslavement, where um, Muslim practices turned into some of the Christian practices, right? Where we talk about ring shouting and we talk about some of the praying, praying. and in some of the earlier churches and communities, there's there's um, Arabic uh, written on the sides of the pews, right? That there was always, um, those lines were not as cut and dry um, as they are today in the 21st century, right? That there, there right. was some interconnectedness and some, I, I don't call it messiness, but that religion is messy. Right, that there are often no clear-cut bounds in religious practice, um, right. and, and and it's some messiness there. But when I think about, um, I think what you were getting at, and and the ways that it has been separate, um, black faith um, has been the bedrock of the black community, right? And black faith more so encompasses other faith traditions, right? Um, and doesn't leave people outright. So Black faith has been a quintessential part. Do we need to combine it or drop that? I don't know. As a theologian, as a scholar, um, I would say no, right? Because particularly if you're a Christian in the text, we have all of these different communities and cultures that are coexisting at the same time, right? That we have all of this happening. And it was never condemned. It happened, and we've always been that way. And I think it's something still powerful about the Black church and about Black faith and what Black faith 
Um, and these black organizations do particularly still in many of our, our communities that have been left to their own devices, right? That they are food pantries, they are social services, they are babysitters and daycares, they are right. bombs in Gilead for many black communities. And so I don't know if they need to, to, to merge or if those walls need to be broken per se. Um, I'm interested in convert because I think when we begin to do that, um, and you see it, right, that you have a population of African-Americans, even in Pew's study, who are going to predominantly white churches, right, that, that those numbers, uh, particularly evangelical churches, those numbers are on the rise, but questions are, are being raised in those communities, right, that what does it mean to be in a space where your culture is not dominant? What does it mean to be right. in a space where people are dying at the hands of vigilantes, people are dying at the hands of oppressive systems, and it's not talked about in your faith community. Right. When In yeah. Pew's most recent study, they talk about m many people who are in historically Black churches, they talk about race, they talk about issues that are pertaining to the Black community, and that's not necessarily the case when, when, when African Americans go into predominantly white religious spaces, particularly white churches. Um, and so I think that there's something there that the, yeah. that Black faith offers. Um, they offer the safety, they offer um, this bomb, but there's also some trauma. And, and that is what we found, particularly in our God Talk conversation series, is millennials are really beginning to name the traumas of Black religious spaces, right? Mm. That we're seeing this rising number of particularly Black millennials and now even Gen Zers, because this is the first time Gen Z is really included in Pew's study, that um, they are leaving because of some of those traumas, right? The Black church uh -huh. is evolving. Um, you know, it's in some ways nostalgic and still holding on to what it was in the right. 60s and the 50s. Um, and you have a group of, uh, of millennials, and again, in that nothing in particular number that continues to rise as Pew began the religious landscape survey uh, back in 2007 till now that number is at 21%. Who would have ever thought that 21% of um, wow. individuals that, are, that identify as Black would be unaffiliated? So that, that lets us know that every seven years that they've been um, doing this study, that the number continues to go up three, four or 5%, right? That this number is not going anywhere, that this, right. there's something happening um, in Black faith, and particularly the Black church. Um, and so um, I'm interested, particularly my scholarship and my work is around um, how faith is happening and how Black faith is happening in the digital realm. Um, and in particular, how faith, what is happening with this unaffiliated population of those who are leaving right. these Black religious spaces, right? That there is something happening in Black religion. And so at the center, we have really tried to ensure that we are at the forefront of that conversation, at the forefront of that research, to ensure that we're capturing the oral histories of Black millennials who are leaving faith traditions, that we are capturing the, the, the oral histories of individuals who are critiquing and talking about out loud these traumas that are happening. But also there's something going on with this, this nothing in particular, and I don't even think that's necessarily the right term, um, that these individuals who are practicing religion in what I would call these liminal spaces, that, that we're seeing the rise of African-Americans practicing Buddhism. Um, we're seeing, and, and taking pieces of Buddhism, maybe not 
particularly converting, mm. if we want to use that term, to Buddhism, but taking pieces of it. We have African-Americans practicing and using crystals. We have African-Americans who are now going back to African traditional religions, um, Ifa, Yoruba. We have uh, Black people that are uh, embracing Candomblé and voodoo, right? So we're beginning Rastafarianism, right? These aren't new practices, but what we're seeing is that the younger generations are embracing these things out loud. And so right. Black religion and Black faith is evolving. And how do we tell those stories now, um, right? That, that these traditions aren't necessarily new, um, but what we're seeing, even uh, Black individuals identifying as witches, right? That these, these things are happening out loud now, particularly with Black millennials and Gen, Gen Zers now, and particularly with Black women. Right, that black women are leading this evolution of black faith and black religion across religious traditions, not just Christianity. In Islam, you see black women that are taking the forefront in these conversations and in religious practice. And you're seeing it in Buddhism, where we have um, something we've collected at the museum, the uh, oral history of the first African-American Buddhist monk um, is a black woman, Mayoki Kane Barrett, living in Houston, Texas, right? So all of this is happening. And so we at the Center for Religion at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture are trying to ensure that we tell all of the story, the totality of the religious experience for black people in this country. Right. Thank you, Teddy. I, I, if you have time, I'd like to ask you one last question. Yeah, uh, go ahead. So you sit atop a treasure trove of information about the American experiment. Um, we are in a present moment, 2021, uh, the American project. Uh, religion is in the public square, as it always has been. It's in the public square in a particular form or particular forms, as we all know. There's religious freedom discussions in the public square. There's religion is part of the problem discussions in the public square. It's everywhere, as you well know. From your vantage point, with your expertise, sitting there in the National Museum of American, African American History and Culture, its religion curator, what would you say to our listeners about religion in black life for 2021 and beyond so that we can understand it? And some of our listeners are, are, are in the black church and I understand that term uh, is very expansive now of black faith. Some are not. What would you tell our listeners that's important in 2021, looking at our historical moment? What can you offer? Yeah, I think the first thing is that that black faith is, as I said it before, is evolving. Um, that we are seeing in these conversations in the public square, um, religion in many ways is on trial. Um, and in this country as a whole, right? So we're seeing not only is Black faith for Black people still overwhelmingly Christian and still overwhelmingly a part of faith, but what we're seeing on the opposite side of that is that white individuals are overwhelmingly disconnecting from faith, right? That there is something happening in this country. For our Latino brothers and sisters, faith is still a quintessential part of that experience in this, in this country as well. But there's something happening with faith, right? That, that faith is being reimagined in the public square. Faith is being put on trial in the public square by younger generations, by older generations, that we're really seeing um, a generations of people who are saying, you know, that I don't make decisions based on faith. I don't make decisions based on my religious beliefs and my community. 
But then you're also having those who still do, right? That there is, if you want to use it, there's this messiness happening in the public square with faith and religion in this country. Um, that in in some spaces it is is being still used to oppress and marginalize our LGBTQ identifying brothers and sisters and and non-binary um, individuals. Their 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 faith is still oppressing women in many communities in this country. Right. That that there. And, and, and those who are differently abled in body, right? That there is something happening with faith in the public square that is being called out and put on trial and witnesses are being called and testimonies being given, particularly for a younger generation, right? And so for me, the question is, what does faith look like 20, 30 years from now um, based on the moments we're living in right now? And that's what I'm trying to figure out. That's as a scholar, I'm trying to figure out what is the future, not only of black faith, right? Uh, because that's the work that I do and we do at the museum, but what is the future of faith in this country overall, right? Will Christianity still be the dominant faith in 20, 30 years, right? Will this hold still, what are these conversations of religious freedom look like in 20 to 30 years, right? Because it's being decided today. Um, in the conversations, in the way that religion is still being used to marginalize and oppress, but also in the ways that religion is still being used uh, to uplift and 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 to comfort and to shield, right? That there, these dualities exist in the public square, right? So we have examples of both happening. And so, what are younger generations, right? That. What are they doing? That's for me, the work that I'm trying to figure out. Um, and particularly as it relates to black faith, um, that what are young people doing as it relates to their faith? Because if they're not engaging with faith, that means they won't raise their children to engage with faith, right? And we're seeing those numbers and we're seeing that right now, right? With millennials and Gen Z, um, the, the historians, and scholars, and researchers uh, always assumed that, oh, the numbers with millennials, they would, they would ebb back up as they got older. We're our, our largest group, uh, our oldest subset of millennials are 40 this year, and the numbers are still going down, right? So there, there doesn't seem to be a shift as it was in previous generations. Oh, you know, you go out, you, you experience the world, and then you come back. That's not necessarily happening. And so what does that mean for our, particularly for Black faith, what does it mean for our institutions? What does it mean for these mosques and these churches and these temples that are sitting in communities that are empty or practically empty, that are holding on to baby boomers and silent generation and some Gen Xers and a few millennials? Will these institutions be able to support the work that they're doing in the communities, in our local schools, in, again, serving as food pantries, serving as social service agencies for many uh, with vacation Bible schools and summer programs? Like what happens to that when these institutions die? So I'm really interested in that. Um, and particularly, how can these institutions be reimagined um, for a new generation of people? Um, right. And so for me, that's some of the things that I'm thinking about um, as we've moved forward. And I, I, I hope that others begin to think about is how do we reimagine faith, particularly Black faith, for a new generation, right? How do you serve it to a new generation. And what we're finding is they don't want leftovers. They don't want the same oppressive systems, right? That their mothers and their fathers and their grandmothers lived within. That they would rather leave. 
um, and go to brunch and have mimosas or go to music festivals where music and faith is practiced in, an, in unlikely spaces, right? That there is something happening with, with Black faith, right? And that through the work that I do at the museum, we're exploring that there's something happening in Black faith. Um, even for those who stay, for younger right. individuals who stay, um, they're calling for a reckoning, right? That that this, to use the term of theologian Candace Bimbo, that there is a theological reformation that is long overdue that I think we're living through right now. I think history will be the better judge of it, but I think we're living through that right now, um, that religion in the public square is on trial. Um, and and, and I, I wouldn't say it's religion per se, um, it's the institutionalization of faith that's on trial. Um, and, and, and so particularly within Black communities. Um, but I also do want to lift up those who have found that there was no reconciling, right? That they have embraced atheism and agnosticism and um, those particularly Black non-believers and, and the rising number of individuals who identify um, that there's something there as well, right? And that is the work that we're doing at the center is to chronicle those stories as well. Right. Um, because in and of itself, that's a part of the Black faith conversation, right? That they yep. are creating still for Black people. And there's research and, and, and many scholars have done work about what Black societies and organizations do for Black people, that there's still community happening even in those spaces. So um, that's what that's what I would leave, that, that faith okay. is evolving. Um, and if, to use a Christian term uh, from Christian scripture, that, that, that God is doing a new thing. Um, and, and how do we uh, walk with that? How do we embrace that? What does that look like uh, for uh, this new generation and this new time in which we're living? Well, from the perspective of the National Museum of American Religion, Teddy, you're doing important work there, so thank you. Thank you, Chris. We have been listening to Teddy Reeves, Curator of Religion at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, as he has helped us better understand where religion is to be found in the African American tapestry. The Startup Digital First National Museum of American Religion is both a place of convening for discussions about current national issues where religion or the idea of religious freedom is in play, and a nationally recognized center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle. Listeners, once again, to join the effort, go to whensorrowcomes.subscribemenow.com where you can receive for a $200 donation a signed copy of the book When Sorrow Comes by Melissa Mathis, which is about sermons that have come to the aid of America during times of national crisis. Teddy, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you are busy. You have supplied all of us uh, with information that will help us in the public square as we contemplate the future of the American experiment in self-government. Thank you so much, Chris. I greatly appreciate it. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. <laughs>